0: And find your seats. Welcome back. Hope you all had a good week. We've got our homework check-in there at the table. Aaron Van Cleve is back there. You can show your outline that you've come up with, and have you made a copy of your outline so you can hand that in for me? I don't know if I made that clear on the assignment, but you should just assume I always want a copy of your homework so that I can see uh, myself and maybe interact. Especially this week is important for me because I want to be able to see your topic and be able to then make sure that everybody's making progress uh, as needed on the speech besides just the check marks on the attendance sheet and homework sheet. Uh, Everybody have a topic? Raise your hand if you don't have a topic. Good. Good. And if you have any questions about how to research it, hopefully you've already got a lot of good research done, but you've got two weeks now from today to write your speech. So you've got the outline, you've got hopefully a good amount of research done, but you've got two more weeks to do the research and to hand in your uh, written speech. A five to seven minute speech is about 750 to 850 words, all right? You guys should have notes, paper out, because I always say noteworthy things. Uh, 750 to 850 words in a 5 to 7 minute speech on average. If you're a really fast talker, maybe more words. If you have tortoise nervosa, maybe less words. Um, But if you're thinking about how many pages that's going to be, I read on Google that... Uh, a five-minute speech should be about three or four single-spaced pages in 12-point font. So three or four pages in 12-point font is what you're looking for, single space, if you, one and a half space it or double space, or whatever. Most word processors have a, a word count on it, so uh, I'll be looking for that range, uh, and uh, I can tell what size font is. So don't try to fool me with with you know 26-point font. <laughs> now when it comes to your speech, the written speech is due October 28th, I'm not going to be here next week, my family's going to be on vacation in Colorado,
1: Woo-hoo.
0: Uh, but we're going to have a great uh, guest speaker here, Deb Bedir is going to be here talking about the Reformation, and that's why I changed our wallpaper this morning, that if Reformation Day is coming up October 31st, is well known among Christians as Reformation Day, in the world, it's known as Halloween. They can celebrate death and darkness and spells and all that. while well, we celebrate uh, the five solas of the Reformation. You guys have heard about the five solas of the Reformation. I think they were in the chapter that we read from Schaefer. And so uh, here you've got sola scriptura. And then it goes around to sola fides, sola gratia, sola Christus, and soli Deo Gloria. And those are Latin phrases for scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. And that's a great way to summarize the basic principles, the foundational principles of the Reformation. We'll be talking a little bit more about the Reformation today, if time permits. So you've got your assignment for the next two weeks, and the other part of your assignment that goes along with the Reformation, which I sent out in the email last week, is the movie that I want you to watch. So today I'm giving you assignments for the next two weeks, okay? Uh, you've got two weeks to finish God's Outlaw, a great video that I sent out the link to, and that's in the email assignment I sent last week. And I I think I attached to the email the questions that go along with the, the movie, the study questions, but I printed out a copy for you, so I'll go ahead and hand those around. It's a very good movie. Wesley gives it his thumbs up, so that's... Uh, You've got my thumbs up, you've got Wesley's thumbs up. Now, it's old, and again, like our Francis Schaefer book, the production values aren't up to contemporary standards. But for its time, it was a well-produced movie. Well-funded, well-produced in its time. But the most important thing about any movie is not the special effects or the graphics or the soundtrack or any of that, as much as those things are important parts. The most important part of a movie is the writing, the script, and that's where this movie is excellent. The, the writing and the script in the William Tyndale story, God's Outlaw, is one of the best that I've ever seen in a Christian movie or a historical movie, a biographical historical movie. And I think it does an excellent job of capturing the spirit of the Reformation in the person of William Tyndale. And that's the best way to understand history is to understand it in the people who embody that history. And and God gives us certain people in certain times and places who really tell us, their life story tells us uh, everything that we need to know about what's going on in the world at that time. Because they're just at the center of the controversy and and all that is happening. And that's, that's William Tyndale. And there's people like that in our world today, right? And when people are writing the history of the early 21st century, they're going to be talking about, well, Donald Trump became president, and and Jordan Peterson became this huge uh, phenomenon, and all these people who are at the center of the clash in worldviews in the 21st century. Well, William Tyndale was that man in his time in England, and we owe so much to William Tyndale. The, The Bible that you read every Sunday, hopefully every day, you guys are reading your Bibles, so much of that we owe to William Tyndale, his translation work, but not just his translation work, but his willingness to lay down his life so that the Bible would be in the common language, the English language. Now it is inevitable that the Bible was going to be translated into English, but William Tyndale is the one who really made it happen uh, because of his faith and his love and his hope. All right, so that's your assignments. So you've got God's outlaw, you've got the questions. more detailed answers, the better. And the more you put into something, the more you're going to get out of it. If you don't put much into the class, you're not going to get a lot out. The more you put into the class, the more you will get. And hopefully I'm giving you assignments that are worth putting time into. It's going to make you a better person. And equip you for all that God wants you to do in your life. All right, so the speech and God's outlaw, we got it. Let's move on then to our lecture for today. Now, we're going to talk about apologetics some more, some things I haven't been able to cover yet. We're going to watch a couple of short videos from a series called uh, What Would You Say? What Would You Say is a good YouTube channel I'm going to recommend to you. In fact, let me write that here on the board. I don't know why I bother writing things since my handwriting is so bad nobody can read it anyway, but it makes me feel better. And then we're going to, at the end, hopefully have some time to talk about the disastrous quiz we had last week. Oh, it's chihuahua. We've got some things to learn about preparing for quizzes, so we'll, we'll talk about that at the end. Now, the first quote I want to present to you this morning to think about, the, the big idea that is my, my attention-getter. Remember when you're writing a speech, you want to start off with an attention-getter. And, and so here's a quote for you to think about. As nothing is easier than to think, so nothing is as difficult as thinking well. As nothing is so easy as to think, so nothing is as difficult as thinking well. I wish I could remember who said it. Maybe I can Google that and Google will tell me who said it. But I think that is a, a great uh, quote to capture... The need for us to be thinking about thinking. That's one way that philosophy has been described. Philosophy is thinking about thinking. And as we think about thinking, we realize that we develop a lot of habits, a lot of sloppy patterns in our thinking, a lot of lazy thinking, a lot of selfish thinking... And that we have to learn to be self-disciplined in our thinking. And one of my heroes in this regard was a, a Christian man who's a, a well-known scientist and has contributed much to the field. Uh, and so much of what we owe in modern science is to great Christians who had a biblical worldview. I forget his name at the moment, but his, his quote that I'm going to try to remember, I'm a butcher, goes along the lines that the, the most important thing when it comes to science, as in all fields of human learning is to set aside your personal bias and to pursue the truth for the truth's sake. And we all have personal bias that is going to cloud our thinking, that's going to cause us to be prejudiced. We're gonna prejudge something before we think it through, before we look at the reason and the evidence and the coherence of it. And we're gonna try to make things fit what suits our purposes, our desires. And learning how to set aside your desires to be able to pursue the truth Well, that is what is going to allow you to think well instead of thinking poorly. As nothing is easier than to think, so nothing is so difficult as to think well because we've always got these patterns of thinking for our benefit instead of thinking to the glory of God and the good of our fellow man. Now, with that in mind, I want to give a discussion today about thinking well when it comes to comparing and competing worldviews. We live in a multicultural society, A multicultural society is not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing in and of itself, but we do live in a multicultural society, and though some people in the world think that's an inherent strength, there are challenges that are to be met in a multicultural society, and that is challenges of communication. That when you've got different cultures living together, it becomes difficult to communicate even if you're speaking the same language because your culture will define key terms differently. And so you're using the same words, but you're using them in different ways with different meanings. And so in a multicultural society, you are a cross-cultural missionary wherever you go. Now, here in Firth, our, our culture is, is not super diverse. We've got some Hispanic folks living in uh, the village. We've got some Anglos living in the village. And this is a, a relatively monolithic culture in, in southeast Nebraska and in, in rural areas like we have here. But when I was living in Los Angeles, I could go from, from my church, uh, where we had you know, largely a group of people that were, looked like me and thought like me, Although there was uh, Asian uh, ministry and a, a Hispanic ministry and Spanish language, and and so we were learning how to live together with different languages and different cultural backgrounds because of our unity in Christ. But you could walk from that church down the street to the Buddhist temple, the the largest Buddhist Buddhist temple in California, and then on the same street you could walk down, uh, and you could. Uh, go to the the synagogue. There's a huge synagogue on that street as well where the the Jewish worship was taking place. And when I was working in Lincoln even, uh, as multicultural as Lincoln is, I was able to share the gospel with Muslims while I was working at Valentino's or Catholic co-workers. Uh, Mormon missionaries would come to my door. And so even within the Christian worldview... There are differences in worldview between Catholics and Protestants. Like we have here, these are are things that are distinctive to the, the Protestant form of Christianity. And although Mormons call themselves Christians, they are a very distinct religion from Christianity. Again, using similar terminology, but meaning totally different things. And so that makes communication difficult. And that's why we have to be clear in our thinking, and we have to learn to use good tools of communication like asking good questions. And the most important question that you can ask in a multicultural society where you're both speaking English but you mean very different things by the key words that you're using is, what do you mean by that? Remember I told you this before, a key question that you wanna be able to have in your back pocket at all times is to say, what do you mean by that? That's a key tool so that you do not act a fool when you get into conversations with people from a different world view. A fool is somebody who is not understanding what he's talking about, and not understanding who he's talking to, and he's not communicating well because he hasn't taken the time to listen first. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. And so, lots of times, the world is going to show themselves to be a fool, and they're going to assume they, they know you, and they know what you're talking about, and they know their position, and they're, they're ready to tell you what's what, and they're not going to listen to you. Instead, they're just going to act like a fool. I don't want you to be that way. Now, just because you're a Christian and you've got the truth doesn't mean you can go out into the world and start telling the truth to people without listening first. You've got to ask good questions, understand who it is that you're talking to, and then the Holy Spirit of God who is with us is going to give you wisdom in the moment to know how to talk to each person. When I was sharing the gospel with a Muslim on the campus of UCLA, I uh, I was not an expert on Islam. And it's probably good that I wasn't an expert on Islam, because then I would ask questions, and I would listen, at, and not just talk at them. And so, I would ask questions, and I would listen, and then God would show me, and he did show me, what, what this Muslim man needed to hear about the truth that's in Jesus Christ. And so, listening, asking questions, and then speaking to the individual is key to good apologetics. Now, when it comes to living in this multicultural environment, we've got to recognize there's a lot of different worldviews. And when it comes to defending our worldview, there's more to it than just being able to understand creation versus evolution. Now, if you could stand up on the stage and, and give a good talk on why creation is true and evolution is false, or if you would even be so bold as to be able to debate an evolutionist on Christianity and creationism versus secular humanism uh, philosophical materialism and neo-darwinian evolution if you could do all that well that's that's one issue that is at odds between two different worldviews. but there's a lot of other things that are involved in being able to defend the christian faith than just that one prominent issue that we often focus on or talk about uh, like the question of does god exist Well, that's a related question to the creation of creation versus evolution, right? It's a more foundational question. If you can prove that God exists, then you do not have philosophical naturalism as your foundation to build your neo-Darwinian evolution on. Um, So the the question about God's existence is a key question when we're talking about apologetics. Another key question is... uh, How is knowledge possible or is knowledge possible? Is it possible to know things with certainty? Is there such a thing as objective truth or is all truth socially constructed? Uh, What is the nature of truth is a key question, very foundational question. There's the the question of ethics. Where do ethics come from? How do we know what is right and wrong? Is that socially constructed? Uh, Are ethics innate? Are they unchanging? These types of questions. What is the nature of reality? Uh, this, again, gets back to the philosophical naturalism versus the supernatural uh, worldview of the Christian, and so the nature of reality itself. Um, is human nature good, evil, or a mixture of the two? Uh, all these are important questions in diverse worldviews, and Christianity has a specific answer for each one of these, but being able to present that to other worldviews takes skill. And you're going to be going out from your home schools. You're going to be going out from your home into a a multicultural world. And you're going to meet Mormons and Muslims. And you're going to meet Buddhists. And you're going to meet all kinds of people, secular humanists, Marxists, who have very different worldviews than you. And my job is to help you and to help your parents, because really this is your parents' job above all else, is to prepare you to be able to, to go out and interact wisely and lovingly With other worldviews. That's really what apologetics is all about. It's, It's teaching you how to interact wisely and lovingly, benefiting others when you go out into this multicultural nation and world. Now, I want you to understand this about beliefs there is a time and a place to be skeptical. Sometimes we think of the word skepticism as a a negative word, a negative concept. But skepticism is actually a good thing. And I want you to be skeptical. I want you to be skeptical of everything. Uh, That you want to ask questions. And you want to make sure that your knowledge is not based upon mere accident. Uh, This is what I choose to believe because this is what my family believes. You'd be surprised how many Christians believe Christianity because that's what their loved ones believe, and they want to fit in with their loved ones. It's not that they're really convinced in their heart. I know this because I see when their family, like their husband or children or somebody like that, goes to a different version of Christianity or goes to a different worldview altogether, very often they'll follow with them because they value the family relationship more than they value truth. And you can see that when they change what they believe along with their family, along with their group. And so much of what we believe is is based upon that desire to fit in with our group. And I don't want you to be that way. I want you to be a person who loves the truth more than you love your family. Because that's what Jesus taught. He said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus said that if you love your own life more than me, the way, the truth, and the life You're not worthy of me. So you're not worthy of Jesus if if you love anything else more than the truth. Jesus is the truth. And you've got to make up your mind right now, as a young person, what is your life all about? Is your life about the pursuit of truth in Jesus Christ? Or is your life about fulfilling other desires in your heart? Acceptance, love, uh, being a part of the group of people that you care about. What's most important to you? All right. So I want you to learn to be skeptical. I am skeptical of many things, many truth claims. I'm skeptical of Joseph Smith's claim to be a prophet. Joseph Smith claimed to be a prophet. He claimed that he received divine visions and that he translated from golden tablets the Book of Mormon with divine help. I'm skeptical of those claims. I don't believe those claims. I examine them. I try to see, are those claims True, are they reliable? Should I believe what Joseph Smith and millions of his followers say about him being a prophet? And I say, no, I should not believe that. I'm skeptical about the Pope's infallibility. I don't know how anyone can be a student of history and not be skeptical of the Pope's infallibility. Uh, The Pope has gotten so many things wrong so many times over, uh, it's, it's really hard to believe that the Pope is infallible. But that's what people think about the Bible. Just like you're skeptical of Joseph Smith... And just like you're skeptical about the Pope's infallibility, so many people are skeptical about the Bible's authority. They'll say, why should I believe the Bible any more than I should believe Joseph Smith or the Pope? And so the God who wrote the Bible has given us good reasons that we can know and that we can share with others. Not just good reasons that are good enough if you want to believe it, right? That's the way a lot of things are. You have good reasons that are are good enough if you're inclined to believe it. These are reasons that are good enough if you are disinclined to believe it. That anyone, even if they don't like the Bible, even if they don't want to believe the Bible, even if their group hates the Bible, if anyone seeks the truth and really wants to know, is the Bible God's word? God has given sufficient evidence to show them. Any truth seeker. The Bible says this, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And that the reason why people don't find the truth is because they're not searching for it with all their heart. They're searching for the truth half-heartedly. And a half-hearted search for the truth will never find it. Listen to that. A half-hearted search for the truth will never find it. You have to search for the truth with your whole heart. It's got to be the most important thing to you. You must be willing to forsake everything for the sake of finding the truth. Or you won't. Um... Your own biases, your own desires, your own sinful nature will blind you. We can't go out into the world and say, because the Bible says so. You used to be able to do that because we lived in a nation a hundred years ago that believed in the authority of the Bible. So you could appeal to the authority of the Bible and people would accept that authority. That's not the world we live in anymore. Now I can come into this church on a Sunday morning and tell the people here because the Bible says so and they'll say, okay, great. The Bible says so. I believe it. But if I go to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and I go into my class and say, well, the Bible says... People are going to... Who cares what the Bible says. So, the Bible is an apologetics textbook. This is what I've learned over my years of studying and preaching and teaching the Bible. It is an apologetics textbook. It is full of defense for what is in here. That this is a very unique religious book in the world in that this book claims that it has real history that informs it. That you can investigate and find out the truth of the historical revelation of God through his acts in history and through his prophets. The evidence that we have that the Bible is God's word falls into four categories. As you read from Genesis to Revelation and every time the Bible defends itself, every time the Bible shows itself to be true, which is quite often, it's always going to fall into one of four categories of evidence. And when, when God gives evidence for the Bible, it's one of these four types. One, the miracles in the Bible. write these down. One is the miracles in the Bible. Two, the eyewitnesses of those miracles. Now, these really go together, right? Because how do you know about the miracles without the eyewitnesses? Or how do you verify the historicity of the miracles without reliable eyewitnesses? So you could put one and two together as one category. Uh, The the eyewitnesses to the miracles. Let's go ahead and do that. Let's say three categories. Change it on the fly here. Miracles, eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses of miracles. Number two, since we put the first two together is the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. That God says what's going to happen, and then that's what happens in the history, particularly of the nation of Israel. Now, God does prophesy about other nations, which is also important evidence, but most of the prophecy in Scripture focuses in on the nation of Israel, and in the nation of Israel, a large part of that prophetic evidence is based on the person, one particular Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth. And so the prophecies about Israel, the prophecies about Jesus, these are the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. Now, when you're talking about the miracles and the eyewitnesses, uh, I would write down John chapter 5, verses 31 through 39. John chapter 5, verses 31 through 39, for the miracles and the eyewitnesses. When you're talking about fulfilled prophecy, one of my favorite examples is Isaiah 53. Now, you could jot that down as an example Uh, fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 53 records the prophecy and the fulfillment, of course, is in the Gospels. And then, lastly, the third category of evidence that God gives, besides the eyewitness miracles and the fulfilled prophecy, is the evidence of creation. That God has created the world and He has revealed His own nature and character through the world And that that revelation of his nature and character in the world is consistent with what's in the Bible. So that's another category of evidence. Uh, Creation is really more evidence for the existence of God. Whereas the miracles and the fulfilled prophecy are evidence that the Bible is the word of that God. If you wanted to be more specific on the, the evidence there. Now, I want to show you one of the videos here for today. And it has to do with reason and faith. Reason and faith are very important when it comes to understanding worldviews. Because how are we going to be able to establish the validity of one worldview versus another worldview if we don't use reason? Reason is our major tool here to be able to compare and contrast the validity, the claims of one worldview versus another. So this first video that I'm going to play for you here in just a minute is called Is atheism more rational than belief in God? This is the claim that we find among the secular humanists, the atheists. Atheism is more rational than belief in God. And this atheism is the foundation for the secular humanist worldview, and it's also the foundation for the Marxist worldview. Sadly, the Marxist worldview is largely irrational because of its link with postmodernism, how those two have grown together. Uh, So it's interesting that they have a rational foundation, or claiming to have a rational foundation of atheism, but then they move into irrationality anyway because of their nihilism that flows from their atheism. So there's a self-contradiction going on there that is developed. That's why postmodernism comes after modernism. It develops into the insanity. Uh, So I'll, I'll put that video on, and then we'll talk more about reason and faith.
2: someone tells you that they don't believe in God because they're rational, and rational people only believe things that are supported by evidence. What would you say? Atheism is the belief that there is no God. One common atheistic critique of religious faith is that it requires belief in something that can't be proven scientifically. Is it true that atheists only believe things that science can prove? No. And here are three reasons why. First, atheism requires us to believe that something came from nothing. Science tells us that something can't appear out of nothing. Matter can't suddenly appear out of a void. But galaxies, stars, planets, people, and animals exist. Everything we see came from somewhere. Atheists know that there was a beginning of the universe, but they deny that it was created. As a result, they are forced to claim that, at some point in the distant past, everything we see came from nothing. Not only is there no evidence to support this belief, everything we know from science tells us that's not possible. Second, atheism requires us to believe that life came from non-life. Science also teaches us that something living can only come from something else, was living. A new tree can only come from a tree that is alive, in the same way that a new cell can only come from an organism that is alive. Now, atheists acknowledge life exists, but by denying a creator, they are required to believe that at some point in the distant past, a living thing came from something that wasn't living. This has never been observed, and everything we know about science tells us it's not possible. Yet they believe it, because their belief that there is no God requires it. Third, atheism gives you no reason to trust your reasoning process. Now We trust our brains to engage in reason and logic, and we use reason and logic to form opinions and beliefs. But ask yourself this, if your brain is the result of an evolutionary process rather than design, What reason is there to believe that your brain is capable of performing the task you've given? For all you know, your brain is still 10 million years from being fully functional and rationally reluctant. Atheism not only requires irrational beliefs, like life came from non-life, it also destroys the reason to believe anything is rational by undermining the credibility of our minds, the tool we use to. Regardless of your belief system, there are difficult questions that the limits of human knowledge don't have great answers for. But, the next time someone tells you that faith in God is irrational, that atheism is rational, remember these three things. Atheism requires us to believe that something came from nothing.
1: There is no evidence
2: that this is possible. Atheism requires us to believe that life came from nothing. This contradicts everything science has ever taught us. Atheism requires you to trust your mind, but gives you no reason why you should. If your mind wasn't created for the purpose of finding reality, why should you believe it can? For what would you say? I'm Joseph Baum.
0: All right, that was four minutes long, uh, another minute, and it would be long enough for our speech assignment that's coming up. And this is an excellent example of what kind of speech. I gave you guys three different kinds of speeches. Uh, what, would, what does one fall under?
1: Persuasive.
0: Yeah, persuasive speech. You could even also call it an illustrated oratory with a persuasive angle since they had all the video and graphics that went along with it. Uh, so... The speech writer writes the script, and then the artist comes along and does the drawings, and then the person delivers it. So basically you're writing you know, this type of thing for your speeches, and then you're gonna be presenting them. You'll notice that in this persuasive speech that they had how many main points? Three, right? And they told you at the beginning what the main points were as part of their introduction. Then they walked through the main points, and at the end, they reviewed the main three points. Did you catch that? So they told you, this is what we're going to tell you, and they told you, and then they said, this is what we told you. And that repetition is important. So what were the three main points? You guys remember? Uh, Somebody says, I believe in uh, atheism because atheism is more rational than belief in God. Uh, what What would you say, Clarissa? Okay, something came from nothing. That's not rational nor scientific. Good. But what was the second point? Yep. Yeah. Uh, atheism says that um,
2: we have to believe that life came from non-life.
0: Okay. So something from nothing and life from non-life. That's two things that are not scientific or rational that atheists are forced to believe because of their commitment to atheism. Yep. Yeah. point. Well, we should trust our minds, but it gives us no reason why we should. Okay, good. Uh, so, atheism doesn't give us a sufficient reason to believe that our brains are capable of coming to scientific knowledge through reason. Right? That would be another way of saying it. Now, if if I were an atheist and I was up here and you guys were sharing these arguments with me, what do you think I would say in response? So, now we're going from what would you say to what do you think would be the response. It's always important to try to anticipate the response that you would get from a debate opponent. Uh, so what, what would the atheist say in response to those three points? Any ideas? Well, if, some, er,
2: if something can't come from nothing, then where did God? Good.
0: Yeah, excellent. Uh, that's exactly what they say. Uh, they say, well, you Christians have the same problem of something from nothing because you've got God coming from Where? another god. Uh, That doesn't help anything. So, good. What else uh, might an atheist say in response to some of these uh, objections? Yeah. No, no, no. You got that. All wrong. That's not what that means. Okay, yeah. They just deny it without really explaining why, right? So, you will will get that kind of response as well. And then you have to ask them to clarify, well, what do you mean by that? Why? uh, Where am I wrong on that? So, good. Anything else you can think of? What might an atheist say in response to Life from non-life, something from nothing, or how do we know we can trust our reasoning? Well, you'll have to go out and find out, you know, get into some debates with some atheists and see how they respond. Now, remember that the point of debate is not debate. The point of debate is to find the truth. And so we go out not to win an argument with an atheist or to try to get that gotcha moment. But instead, we go out because we want to win them. The point is not winning the argument, the point is winning the person. And so the manner in which you conduct yourself when you're, con- when you're engaging in these debates is probably more important than your ability to debate. That if people can see that you are a genuine lover of the person you're talking to, that is that you, you want what's best for them, that is going to go a lot further than any argument that you can make. You see this with the Living Waters videos. This is another uh, apologetics resource I recommend to you on YouTube and other places. Is Living Waters. Write that down. It's the evangelism ministry of, uh, what's his name? Ray Comfort. Thank you. I always forget his name. Ray Comfort. And so, Ray Comfort, he does a good job of asking questions. He does a good job of listening, like we're talking about here. And he does a good job of showing genuine concern for the people that he's talking to. And really, that third one, I think, is what makes him most effective. There's uh, an internet meme going around about Ray Comfort calling him the banana man. Because years ago, he put out this video, in a series of videos on apologetics where he kind of jokingly talked about how a banana proves the existence of God just because of how well-designed the banana is, you know, that it fits in your hand, it comes with its own wrapper, uh, it's biodegradable, you know, all that type of stuff, and and so, you know, he was making a serious point, but he was kind of having fun with it, and so the atheists, they just start mocking him as the banana man, and so there's this one internet atheist who had a YouTube channel, and she was particularly, you know, vicious in some of her uh, critiques of, of Ray Comfort, and... Uh, he decided to, to send her a gift. And so he sent her like a $100 gift card and said, Hey, you know, I saw your video about me. Uh, no hard feelings, you know, I'd like to be friends. And she was so surprised by that response that she didn't expect that kind of, of friendship, that kind of gesture of love from someone that she regarded as you know intellectual enemy and opponent that she totally softened her heart and she had him on the, uh, the, the program and, and they had a real talk and a real dialogue about the issues. And so remember that. The most important apologetic that you have is the love that God has given us for others that is going to show that our worldview really is a wonderful, good thing. Um, but all that to say, uh, I want to get back to science and reason and talk a little bit about that here. So what is science? We talked about science in the video. What can be proven by science? What can't be proven by science? How does science operate? What is science? The study for the pursuit of knowledge. Okay, it's a pursuing knowledge by study. Okay, and, and how do we get knowledge scientifically? What, what is the method? What, you see a scientist with his white coat. He's doing the science. What's he doing? What's he doing? Oh here? Observation. Good. Okay. So science is observation and experimentation. You might want to write that down. Science is observation and experimentation. Now, is that the only way to gain knowledge? Is observation and experimentation the only way to gain knowledge? Now, uh, there's also this thing called reason. And reason doesn't necessarily depend upon observation and experimentation. It depends upon the invisible laws of logic. The laws of logic are three basic laws. Uh, Three basic laws of thought that Aristotle codified, but that all logicians have recognized and verified since that time. A logician is somebody whose primary study and focus is logic and reason. And so, when it comes to the three basic laws of thought, this is a good review for those of you that were in my philosophy class last year. What's the first basic law of thought? Remember? Well, give me one of them. It doesn't have to be the first one. The law of identity. The law of identity. That is the third one. I'm just going to abbreviate it by writing identity. And what is the law of identity, Elise? A um, thing is itself, but it can't be. else. Also... A thing is itself. I'm me. At least I think I'm me. If I'm not me, what am I? Uh, the law of identity is a thing is itself. A equals A. That's a basic law of thought. And you might be surprised how important these basic laws of thought are. You might think, well, that's pretty basic. Exactly. Uh, but all thought is built on these basic laws. And if you don't have these basic laws of thought, you've got chaos in thinking. And unfortunately, there is a lot of chaotic thinking and a lot of breaking of the laws of thought uh, going on around us. Uh, so that's one. Anybody know another of the basic laws of thought? Yeah. Law
2: non-contradiction.
0: Good. Non-contradiction. Two, right. That's, uh, I got that one first, so I could be wrong. But on my list... I've got it first. So the law of identity could be summarized as A equals A, or let's use P. I like to use P. Uh, P stands for what? A proposition. That's why we use P in logic. It's a proposition. Anybody know what a proposition is? It's not when you're asking a girl out on a date. Uh, What is it? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Don't go
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a proposition is a statement of truth, a statement of fact. A proposition can be true or a proposition can be false. If I say, it's raining outside, I'm making a propositional statement. I'm proposing a statement about the nature of reality. It's raining outside. Now, that happens to be false. It's not raining outside. But it's still a propositional statement. And so propositional statements have a truth value of true or false. The law of identity is that one propositional statement is equal to itself. And that's important. You can't be changing the propositional statement. Uh, If P doesn't equal P, then thought is not possible. Uh, You can't have any logic unless P equals P. Now, the law of non-contradiction is that you can't have P and not P being true. Uh, here's P. This is the symbol for AND in logic. NOT P is this little uh, tilde or whatever uh, where you put that in front of P. So you got P and NOT P is NOT true. You can't have P and NOT P both be true at the same time. Or you could just change this to equals false. Um, but that's the law of non-contradiction. I can't say it's raining outside and it's not raining outside. And that to be a true statement. You put those two propositions, it doesn't work because I contradicted myself. And so you can test the value of propositional statements. You can test the value of worldviews, the, the proposed truth about reality in worldviews, by the law of non contradiction. And we can prove that the biblical worldview is the correct worldview because it doesn't contradict itself, whereas the other worldviews, They do contradict themselves and therefore show that they are not true. So this is one way of of demonstrating the the truthfulness of a worldview with this basic law of thought, the law of non-contradiction. If we can show people where they are contradicting themselves, then we can show them that they are not being rational. I
2: just had a question like that. An atheist and a non-atheist had an argument. Christians argue that um, the Bible doesn't contradict. Right? also argue
0: that not Right. Yep. So, being able to show someone that there is a genuine contradiction takes some skill um, and uh, uh, some patience. You've got to be willing to work with them and, and show them the difference between a real contradiction and an apparent contradiction. An apparent contradiction is when it looks like a contradiction. For example, if I said uh, I was in a car accident the other day and two cars were involved. And then somebody else comes along and says, no, I was there, and I saw that there were three cars involved in that car accident. And that's an apparent contradiction, because I didn't say there were only two cars involved. I just said there were two cars involved. So maybe I was just focused on those two cars. I was aware of the third car, but I chose not to include it in my statement because I was focused on just these two. So if I said there are only two cars, and then the other person said there were three cars, that's a real contradiction. Those, those cannot be uh, both true at the same time. So there's a difference between an apparent contradiction and a real contradiction. You have to be able to show people the difference there. I've got an example of an apparent contradiction. Yeah. Levi's missing a leg, yet he still has both legs. There you go. Yeah. Uh, that's that's good. <laughs> All right. So we've got a third law of thought here that is missing. Anybody know uh, what should go in the middle of these two? Yeah. The law of the excluded middle. Yes, we have excluded the middle. So the law of the excluded middle means that a statement is either true or false. Uh, Once you understand what a proposition is, the proposition is either true or false. It can't be kind of true, kind of false. Now, if you talk to most people in the world today, this is the one that they don't understand. They'd be like, oh, there's lots of things that are kind of true, kind of false. Um, no, that's, that's, that's false. I think mean, it's demonstrably false. It's a basic law of thought that a propositional statement is either true or not true. And if you don't have that, you can't reason. Uh, these are the basic laws. and Without these, reason doesn't work. So P is either true or not true. Uh, this is the symbol for OR. It's uh, like a capital V. Um, so P is true or P is false. That's the, the law of the excluded middle. Now let's talk a little bit about faith. We've talked about science, it's observation and experimentation. We've talked a little bit about reason. Uh, there's a lot more to say about reason, obviously, but we're just giving an overview of apologetics here today and introducing some key concepts or reviewing some key concepts. So, faith, most people who are atheists will define faith something along these lines faith is the belief in the improbable. Faith is the belief in the improbable, is what, what atheists would say, or the impossible, or the irrational. And they define faith as, as just kind of believing what you want to believe. Instead of believing what is rational and true, Uh, that's not faith. That's the atheist definition of faith. That's a caricature of faith. Faith is believing an authority for something that you wouldn't be able to know on your own. Faith is belief in someone else to tell you something that you wouldn't be able to know on your own. For example, when's your birthday? How do you know that? Uh, because I was told that. By who? My parents. Do you trust your parents? of the time. <laughs> <laughs> See, there's so much that we know that depends upon what someone else told us, believing what someone else told us. and We do this all the time. Uh, my brother was at the airport the other week, and he was getting on a flight, and the flight was delayed. They had some kind of mechanical problem on the airplane, and so they, you know, go over the announcement, and... Say, you know, we're working on this or that, and we'll let you know when we're ready to board. And, you know, an hour later, they are like, all right, problem fixed, everybody get on board. How do you know that the problem's been fixed? You're getting on this little tube, this metal tube, that's going to be 20,000 feet in the air, and you're just taking their word for it that they have fixed the problem, right? A lot of what we do depends upon faith. Now, when it comes to religious faith, that's where the atheist thinks that your faith is irrational. Your faith is not logical. The Atheist would say, well, it's logical, it's rational to, to put faith in the airlines because they've demonstrated, they've shown themselves to be reliable. There's, you know, less uh, people dying in airplane accidents than there are automobile accidents. And so that's why we all get on the airplane when they tell us it's safe to get on the airplane. They've earned our trust. But the atheist says, there is no God. The Bible is not God's word, and so there's no reason to believe it. So faith, in a religious sense, is faith in the impossible or the improbable or or whatever you want to say. So you see that it is their atheism that is determining their negative view of faith in God. Whereas our presupposition that God does exist and that the Bible is God's word leads to the logical conclusion that we should believe what the Bible says. And so it's not really about faith versus science versus reason. It's really about atheism versus theism. That's really what it's about. And so you've got to help atheists to see this and help them to understand. Now, if you meet a sincere atheist who's actually willing to listen to you and who actually wants to know, great. But most of the time, they're not interested and they just want to make fun of you. And and so you kind of want to know, am I talking to someone who really wants to listen or am I not? And that's a good question to ask. There's another good question to ask when you get into apologetics conversations. Right next to what do you mean by that is, do you really want to know? Do you really want to know? Don't waste your time explaining all this to somebody who doesn't really want to know. Right? When you ask them, do you really want to know? You're putting your finger on exactly what they need to be thinking the atheist doesn't necessarily have to be thinking about creation versus evolution and the uh, you know ge- genetics of, of primates and all that type of thing. What he needs to be thinking about is, where's my heart? Am I believing what I'm believing because it allows me to do what I want without any consequence of being judged by God. Is that why I'm an atheist? You get down to the presuppositions. You get down to what is at the root? That's what's so important in apologetics. You're not dealing with all these objections and all these arguments, which are fun. I I like it. But you're not going to help people that way. The way you're going to help people is to get to the heart issue. Ray Comfort does a great job of this, and, and he's so good at it. He'll talk about issues, but then he'll always bring it back to your relationship before God and your guilt, your guilty conscience that you have before God. Everybody knows that they've done what's wrong. Everybody feels bad about the wrong things that they've done. And so, if you ask them about their guilty heart and what they're going to do with that, that's where Christianity has answers that the atheistic world doesn't have. And you can really, hopefully, get people to listen instead of just debate with you and argue with you. Alright, now, one of the issues that people are discussing and debating in our days is the issue of racism. And so the second video that I wanted to show you today is is dealing not with uh, root issues of God's existence or whether or not uh, belief in God is rational, but instead this one starts to then develop some of the uh, ethical issues that flow out of these larger worldview issues. And so I thought a second video here would also whet your appetite to watch more videos on what would you say. So let's see what this one's about. Another example of a three-point persuasive speech. This one is five minutes long, so it
1: five but... You're in a conversation, or maybe a diversity training session at work, and the topic turns to systemic racism. And someone asks, "Are we all racist?" What would you say? Introspection is very important. Christians especially are led by Scripture with the assistance of the Holy Spirit to assess our words and deeds and even our hearts and our motives. Today, it's not uncommon for accusations of racism to be weaponized in order to silence those who disagree with certain points of view. There's no shortage of books and videos instructing people about their fragility and shared guilt, offering unbiblical formulas to become allegedly anti-racist. Often the self-proclaimed anti-racist movement can be itself racist, making stereotypical assumptions about entire groups of people. Racism is a sin, and the solution to racism is only found in the one who rescues, redeems, and reforms us. When asking ourselves if we are racist, we must be open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Every person is made in the image and likeness of God, and we should repent any time that we fail to treat anyone as the valuable image-bearer. But that doesn't mean we should assume that we are racist by default. The next time someone says that most people or all people of a particular group are racist, remember these three things. Number one, many accusations of racism today are in fact prejudgments. Just because someone throws out a label doesn't mean it is legitimate. Many accusations of racism lack a clear definition of what racism is. Think about it this way. If someone said that all women are anti-male feminists, would that be a fair accusation? Many women hold feminist views, but that doesn't make them anti-male. And many women don't hold feminist views at all. This accusation against an entire group of people would be unfair and inaccurate. Like saying that just because many sports fans drink alcohol, all sports fans are alcoholics. And just because some best-selling authors who profit from leveling these accusations label entire groups of people as racist does it mean it is true? It's not uncommon for these authors to also accuse critics of fragility whenever their dogma is questioned. But the truth is, every human being is fragile and prone to sin, no matter the hue of our skin. No one group of people holds a monopoly on racism. Racism is the sin of prejudgment. Today's surge of pious anti-racism often promotes racist assumptions about people solely based on the color of their skin To combat the alleged racism, it claims it wants to eradicate, which brings up the second point. Number two, not all calls for racial justice come from the same worldview. Christians should be champions of racial justice because of what the Bible teaches about who we are and what gives every human value. The anti-racist movement is built on critical race theory. Essentially, critical race theory teaches that there are two groups of people, the oppressed, people of my complexion, and the oppressors, who are always white. The oppressors are always wrong, and the oppressed are always right, not because of what they do, but because of the group they belong to. This victimhood narrative creates a false moral hierarchy that is unbiblical. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All means all. White supremacy, black supremacy, or any other form of racism are real and grave evils. Blaming entire groups of people for all of society's ills fails to truly and critically look at problems. It will not help us arrive at real answers. This worldview only perpetuates the dangerous and corrupting us-versus-them dichotomy that plagues our culture. Which leads to the third point. Number three. We can only truly confront evils in our society if we tell the truth. Understanding what is true and what isn't true about racism can be difficult. For example, many media and academic elites claim that America hasn't changed since 1619. This type of hyperbole and exaggeration make it difficult to discern what is true and what isn't. We can't let everything and everyone calling themselves anti racist determine the narrative about race or fall us into believing that entire groups of people are racist by default or that their actual goal is to end racism. We must also hear and amplify other voices, voices of faith and reason, who rely on biblical truths instead of cultural trends. Racism does exist, but the next time someone asks if we are all racist, remember these three things. Number one, many accusations of racism today are in fact prejudgments. Number two, not all calls for racial justice come from the same worldview. Number three, we can only truly confront evils in our society if we tell the truth. For what would you say? I'm Ryan Bomber. The importance of
0: seeking the truth. tendency, like we started off today talking about, to, to think sloppily. To think according to our desires. To think according to what benefits us and our people. And we fall into these bad habits of thinking because we are partial. We are partial to ourselves. We are partial to our group. The Bible talks about the sin of partiality. Partiality goes far beyond Issues of of racism, partiality goes to, to all human interactions. And so as nothing is as easy as to think, so nothing is as difficult as to think well. And to think well, we must think impartially. We must not be thinking according to ourselves being the center of the universe, but we must think as God being the center of the universe. And when you are thinking impartially, you're thinking about people as they relate to God not people as they relate to you. See the difference? When you look at people as being created in the image and likeness of God, that that pillar, one of the two pillars of a, a biblical anthropology that we talked about two weeks ago, well then you recognize that you can't be partial to one group of people over another group of people because God has created all people. And God values all people as being created in his image and likeness. Now we have that foundation to build from. The world does not have that foundation to build from, that mankind is created in the image of God. The world does not have the truth that the people have innate a dignity and worth and value because of the special way that God has created us and, and given us a rational soul that is able to know God and to know right from wrong and to have this, this biblical worldview. And so the world is lost. They're separated from God, they're separated from the source of knowledge, they're separated from the, the one who gives a proper relationship to all things and all people. And so they're, they're stumbling about in the darkness, and they don't know what they're stumbling over. So instead of viewing the you know, blue-haired gender studies major as, as some kind of enemy, recognize that's your mission field, that you're going out to try to seek and save the lost, and they're lost, and have some compassion on the lost, and recognize that you yourself would be lost if it wasn't for God's grace at work in your life, and so the the Bible really does give us the worldview that enables compassion, that enables love, that enables the pursuit of truth, and these things that are, are so essential and so valuable and so good for families and society and all that we see. So there's massive implications for these basic philosophical concepts, these basic philosophical decisions uh, of is there a God or is there not a God? Is the Bible God's word or is it not God's word? And what is the nature of reality and truth? All right. Well, I think that's enough uh, for our lecture here today. So let's spend the last part of our class time talking about the quiz. Yes. Can we talk about everyone else's quiz? That might be more comfortable. Can we just like avoid mine? The average score on the quiz was 11.6 out of 19. Uh, So if you got less than 11, you were below average. If you got more than 11, you were above average. And so I'm probably going to grade this on a curve and make it so that 11 is a C, anything below that is D or F, and that anything above 11 is a a B or an A. Um, But I would like to see you guys do better, so let's talk about why we failed on this quiz. Now, you've got the study guide, and I pointed out that most of the questions were going to be coming from what was on the study guide. And when I formulated the quiz, what I did was I got out the study guide, I looked at the names that were the special names uh, and events and things that were on uh, the study guide after the outline, It's got a list of important names, and I, I just uh, made them the answers to the questions. So if you had used the study guide to study for the exam, like I believe I told you, then you should have been able to do pretty well on this quiz. So either you didn't prepare, or you prepared the wrong way. Now, if you didn't prepare, the answer is easy, prepare. if you prepared the wrong way, then what you want to learn to do is you want to try to get in the mind of the teacher. I learned this a long time ago when I was a student. You've got to try to figure out your teacher as to what kinds of things they're going to put on the the quiz. Now, thankfully, I'm trying to give you some hints and clues as to where to start with that. So when you're getting ready for a quiz, don't study everything because there's too much. You have to try to figure out what's going to be on the quiz and just focus on that. And so be strategical when you are getting ready for a quiz. Now, the other possibility, like I said, that you didn't study could be because you don't care uh, about the quiz. And you like just coming and sitting in on class, good on you, and you like learning but it's not important to you whether or not you get a a high grade in this class because you're a homeschooler and your parents can give you any grade you want. (laughs) Now, I didn't have that privilege when I was in school. I went to public school and and back then, uh, I can't speak for schools today, but back then it wasn't that easy to get good grades. They didn't, uh, you know, they left some children behind back then. And so, I I did my best and I was competitive because I I wanted to get the top grades. And so I I worked hard at getting the top score I could on every quiz. So some of you might need some motivation as to why do I want to to study for a quiz. So why do you think I take the time to give you a quiz over what you're reading? What's, What's my goal as a teacher in giving you a quiz? Yep. To make
2: sure we grasp the information.
0: Yeah, um, and particularly when I'm giving you, let's get a little bit more focused, when I'm giving you uh, terms like sola gratia or iconoclasm, I'm giving you dates, and I'm giving you names like Brunelleschi and Rembrandt, uh, wh- why, why is it important to, to be able to pass a quiz on dates, terms, and names? Yeah, you might be able to get the general idea just by reading the text, and that's good. That's most important to get the general idea. And so if you are getting the general idea and you just forget names and dates and things like that, that's fine. But you'll be much better if you can actually fix in your mind some of these dates and some of these names. Because this is going to help you in the future when you're learning. You'll you'll see a name and you'll remember it. Who that person was, and the more that that works for you, the easier it is for you to, to read in this field. Whether you're looking at the art history or uh, you know political history or uh, religious uh, history, that once you start to get some some key names and key dates down, it's going to open up for you understanding and make it easier to to read other books written on that subject. So, like when I when I read the book. Uh, on the front queue here, how should we then live, I've got already a lot of dates and names in my mind that I understand. And so when he introduces a new one, I can correlate it to something that I do know. When he says, you know, Brunelleschi was building his dome uh, or whatever uh, in Italy in 1487, I can, I can remember, well, okay, how does that relate to the discovery of America, what time period was that happening, or how does that relate to Martin Luther's Reformation in Germany, and when he posted the 95 Theses, and I've I've got some dates, and some other events that I can correlate it with, and all that just kind of happens automatically in your mind. So the more you can fix some key dates and key people in your mind, the more when you read history, it's all going to come together, make sense, and correlate That's why when you're learning history, you want to memorize some key dates. Like, when was the fall of Rome? Anybody tell me when when did Rome get sacked by the barbarian hordes? You guys got to know these things. Uh, when uh, When did Luther post his 95 theses? Okay, there you go. See? So, when did Columbus discover America? Uh-huh. Yeah. When was the Civil War fought? 1861 1865. Very good. Uh, so getting some of this down just, just is very helpful. And that's why we do the quizzes. Um, I'm not going to, to fail anybody for, you know, uh, not doing well on the quizzes. But I want you to put some effort and some time into it and to try to do your best. So let me go ahead and hand these quizzes back to you. And in the last couple of minutes, like we did last week, pair up with someone and just review these items. Uh, see how far you can get in quizzing one another back and forth. Uh, Blake. Of course, mine's the top. Levi Pinkman. Thank, Thank you. Naomi Wagner. <laughs> Iris here, no? Clarissa. Oh, Petra. Clarissa. Ariana. Oh, I got 13. <laughs> <Of> course, <Izzy. laughs> Hawkins. i <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, yes. Who uh, did not take the quiz last week? <laughs> those quizzes home, review them, and see if you can get some of those names and dates a little bit more solidified. There will be a future exam at the end of our study of Francis Schaefer's book that will go back and take questions from these quizzes and the like. So the more work you put into it, the better you'll do on the exam. Have a good day.
2: Yes, so we're like four pieces
0: of so. flesh. Uh, there's only one piece that has one face, right?